1: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
0: Well, our show is really fascinating today. It is about privacy, of course, in the information age, but now we're looking at it in terms of its social context which we haven't really done in that particular way. And we have a wonderful professor joining us all the way from the East Coast. Let me introduce you to Helen Niesenbaum, who is professor of media, culture and communication and computer science at New York University, where she's also a senior fellow a faculty fellow of the Information Law Institute, and her area of expertise spans social, ethical, and political implications of information technology and digital media. Helen's research publications have appeared in journals of philosophy, politics, law, media studies, information studies, and computer science, and she's written and edited three books and a fourth one, Privacy in Context, Technology, policy, and integrity of social life, and that is sitting right in my hand, right in front of me, with a really interesting cover. I'm going to have to ask her why, you know, why they did that cover. It's great, and um, that that is um, by Stanford University Press and the National Science Foundation, Air Force Office of Science Research, Ford Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security have supported her work on privacy, trust online. And security, as well as several other studies that she's done regarding uh, computer system design and you know, search engines, digital games, facial recognition technology. And Helen holds a PhD in philosophy from Stanford University and a BA from the University of Witwatersrand. Witwatersrand. Could you say that for me? <laughs> <laughs> Witwatersrand. Oh, okay, very good. And so before joining the faculty at NYU, she served as associate professor of the Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Helen, thank you so much for joining us all the way from New York. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Marie. Well, let me, let me tell you, um, I found your book very, very interesting. So why don't you tell us, why did you write your new book, Privacy in Context? Um,
1: actually, I had been working on privacy for many years. And this interest in privacy directly provoked by information technology. A lot of the work that I had written, the the articles that I had published, were were building towards a theory. They had started out as as, um, articles that were critical of other people's work. And I had been particularly interested in this this kind of response people would give about Information that would be out there, they would say, well, it's public if you're out there in public, then anything I can see about you or say about you is up for grabs and that That was my first notion that the technology was doing something very intense, very strange to our understanding of of what our rights to privacy is and I coined a phrase um, called privacy in public so this work had been um, produced in a series of papers. Finally, I felt I should put all this work together and create a book, and I thought I would take just a few weeks to pull everything together and, and, and write this book. But, of course, um, <laughs> that was not the way things turned out. Um, but I think the work is better for having then marinated, if you will, for another couple of years.
0: Now I love this cover. It looks like a bunch of uh, red and blue marbles. Um, tell us what this. Co- tell me what this cover is. I think it's, it's a great cover. Well, I have
1: to attribute that to the the, the artist at Stanford University Press, and I'm still trying to uh, make an interpretation. I'm not <laughs> sure. It was it was so suggestive to me because the work is about social context and about linked but distinct social contexts of our lives and. That's what I understood from from the picture. But um, one day I'll have to have a conversation with the artist and see
0: what the true meaning is. Yeah, no, I love it. I think it's great. It's, it's very intriguing. Yes. So let's talk about why information technology is considered such a major threat to privacy. We've talked about privacy so much in so many contexts on our yes. show for the last, well, it's almost five years. And so maybe you can give us some insight into that, What, from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can do it in summary form now, and and we can... um, Yeah,
0: we'll get deeper. We
1: can get deeper later, but basically it's that information technology is so outstanding in gathering information, in storing information, in distributing information, and by the same token, it's enormously disruptive of the way personal information gets used and distributed in society, and that's why it's it's caused such problems for, for privacy.
0: You know, um, I don't know if you know this, but I have been helping victims of identity theft for many years. That's mm-hmm. an area of expertise which is a subset of privacy. Yes. You know, identity theft occurs because of the lack of information, privacy, and care, and protection. And yeah. so for me, you know, information technology is a major threat to privacy in terms of all of the negative ramifications of identity theft that destroys people's lives. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that is really a real threat when companies and people and, um, those, you know, that information is beyond our control and it's not protected. Yeah. You know, I don't care if somebody knows my name but if somebody knows my name, my social security number, my birth date and other sensitive data about me, they can take, you know, my whole life away. If they know my uh, insurance policy number, they can take exactly. my medical identity theft. You know, they so so much can be done to me. That's that's the real threat of the negative ramifications of everybody right. having all of this information readily available to me. Now, let me ask you a, a question, though. Um where I hear you have a wonderful accent helen are are where exactly are you from
1: I'm from South Africa Johannesburg
0: okay in south africa um now are they they're not part of um do they also link at all with the, some of the things in the European Union with regard to privacy um they
1: no they're as far as I know, and I really don't know the south african um realm well uh, however, I do know that when um course, when Nelson Mandela came back and um, won the elections and so forth, a new constitution was drafted, a very long constitution by contrast with ours here in the United States. Uh, but they did place privacy into the constitution as one of the fundamental rights, whereas mm-hmm. here in the U.S., of course, we have to, um, I think the constitution does give us rights, but, but we have to infer them in various ways. Right. Of but, course, but there, are, so yeah. Yeah.
0: there are certain states like California, fortunately. We actually do. Our state constitution oh, does right. include privacy. I think there's five states that include privacy. But you're right. The, the federal constitution does not actually say the word privacy like the California constitution. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you mean. You talk mm-hmm. in your book about contextual integrity. Mm-hmm. And and how it can be preserved. Yes. So, why don't you explain to my audience what mm-hmm. do you mean by contextual integrity with regard to privacy?
1: Yes. Okay. Sure. Um. That is. So that is the fundamental concept in the book. And when we when um when someone would say, well, uh, what is a right to privacy? The answer at the superficial level is um. Your right to privacy has been violated when contextual integrity has been violated. So that's the that's the way this concept works. And the the fundamental um assumption behind this theory is, is well the picture of how we live our social lives is that we're not living our lives in this socially undifferentiated space, but we act and we interact in um social context. So at this point i'm sitting in my office at a university i'm i'm in a workplace context i'm i'm in an educational context when i visit my physician i'm in a healthcare context and um different kinds of professional contexts or or schools and um i can be at a at a social event and be in a social context and so forth so we have these different social contexts and these contexts um and, and, of course, there's a lot of scholarly work that talks about uh, social life and the structure of social life. And I'm not an expert, but I draw on some of that work. These contexts are governed by rules, or I call them norms. Some of them are explicit, and they could even be um, embedded in the law. But many, many, many hundreds, you know, you can't even say because some of them are just so implicit They're just there, and we learn them as we grow up in a society. And I should say right away that different societies or different cultures, different historical periods, we're likely to experience society um, divided or um, organized into slightly different kinds of contexts. So this is not a claim that's universally the same for every society in every age. Now, these norms govern all of our behavior, and... Sometimes, as I said, they're explicit. Sometimes they're implicit. Sometimes they're vague, so we don't really know what they are. You're at a cocktail party. How should you dress? Um, what should you say to this person you don't know? You know, not every bit of our behavior is governed. But if you go, for example, for an election, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. You're not, you know. will accept when things change, like machines and so forth. You know what people are allowed to ask you, what they're not allowed to ask you, and so forth. Or, you know, in a courtroom, it's it's highly structured by rules. Now, some of these rules are rules about the flow of information. And these are called informational norms, according to the theory. And the informational norms have very specific structure. They're interested in who the information is about and in what role that person is acting like. A student at a university. Who is um, sending the rule? Uh, sorry, excuse me. Who is sending the information? In what capacity? Who is receiving the information? In what capacity? What kind or what type of information that is, and then, under what conditions or what constraints? And this is something I call a transmission principle, but the jargon doesn't really matter. Under what constraints is this information sent? So your physician when you when you are examined by your physician um, your physician records the nature of your physical problem, and the understanding is that this information is to be treated confidentially, for example, if your physician wants to consult someone else an expert in this particular condition, then it's understood that the if 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 in transmitting this information to an expert in the field is done for your benefit, your health benefit, then the norm allows for the transmission of this particular illness, you know, your health condition. Right, for diagnosis.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, So that's what contextual integrity claims. If, you know, so we have all these entrenched norms. When people respect these entrenched norms, we say that contextual integrity is being respected. And when they violate these norms by one way or another, then we are concerned. We say, you know, not your contextual integrity, but contextual integrity has been violated.
0: And what's so hard about it is that it's constantly changing. (laughs) Right, and and, and the exactly. technology is making it constantly change. You know, I know you you had several numerous examples in your book about that, mm-hmm. and and um, I think it's also intergenerationally changing, mm-hmm. like things that people feel. You know, like my daughter, who's twenty four, you know, who's a senior at UCI. You know, her contextual integrity uh, in terms of what she does on my face and mm-hmm. F- Facebook. Is going to be very, very different than the contextual integrity about privacy that perhaps I would have.
1: Well, you know, you wouldn't. So you wouldn't quite express it in that way, but you might say, first of all, you're completely right. But we have to distinguish between cases in which the norms themselves have evolved, right. and. Cases in which something has happened in society, for instance, you know Facebook has emerged, we have search engines that track every every search that you make, and suddenly you have these disruptions in the the way information flows in society. So those are some changes that we confront. Now, it is also the case that as any um, norm in society, informational norms can change in the face of of change. So for example, The example that you were giving earlier about identity theft Mm -hmm. is, is precisely a great example of that because in the past, people gave out their social security numbers and it wasn't really a problem because it didn't mean very much, your social security number. Now, that is perhaps one, as I'm sure you know way better than me, that is probably the most valuable thing in identity theft can get their hands on, right? But so mm-hmm. now we become much more aware and much more protective of this type of information. So our norms have to change to accommodate um, the new technologies that enable all sorts of things um, in the world.
0: Right. Well, when you get back to the major threat to privacy and the and the and the, and the just. The immense changes that have happened just with the emergence of the internet, right? Yes. And with so, the yes. yeah, and with right. the proliferation of, you know, mega databases right. Right. <laughs> that can be transferred in a in a heartbeat in a nanosecond, right?
1: Right. right. So this is so when, when you asked about um, threats to privacy that are technology based in mm-hmm. the book in the first section of the book, I I try and. Um, uh, some order because uh, there's just so much out there that technology does that has an impact on privacy right. and when when I say privacy from now on what I mean is the flow of information in society how right. information flows so, so the three different categories that I've identified are first of all we have so many more monitoring technologies from surveillance cameras to some that are Highly socially beneficial, like you know, heart monitoring uh, medical systems to um, like
0: body m- scanning, like for to, to diagnose versus body and, scanning at the airport. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Monitoring devices uh, when you're online, just about everything you do is monitored. So we have an, a capacity with this technology to monitor people. Then we ha- a second category is the capacity to store information, and that was one of the primary things that happened in the 60s and the 70s when you had large institutions beginning to see the value in, in database technology. And now we have just tremendous advances in the science of information. So as you say, the information can be aggregated. There's some really clever things that people can do in analyzing the information and profiling and data mining, as you know. Right. So there's that whole technology. That that has been advancing, and many of it, m- much of it, is is highly beneficial. So it's not always problematic, but it causes great disruption.
0: Well, and it's just so like so much cool. of the. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, so much of the wonderful new technology mm-hmm. has the the bright side and the, and the dark side. You yes. know, it can be used for such good, and it can be used for such bad, and that's yes. that's the part that we haven't figured out yet on how to, um, you know help it flourish with the good and still build in the protections. I know for example out here we have Je- Senator Joe Sumidian who is a California senator and you mm-hmm. may know uh, SB 1386 and that originally was um, introduced mm-hmm. by uh, Joe Sumidian and a different and, a, and another senator and he right now Joe Semidian is still in our California legislature right. and he is in the Silicon Valley. And he has introduced lots of legislation Mm -hmm. not to prohibit technology, but to build in technology, uh, uh, privacy into the technology. Mm -hmm. Like before you're going to have RFIDs in driver's licenses, he thought, okay, let's first build in the laws that protect who can see it and, you know, the transparency of it, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody, you know, those who have been against a lot of his privacy legislation think That, oh, you know, he's against technology, and that is not at all where he is. He's just saying, as you're building the new technology within the structure and the architecture of the new technology, be conscious of the privacy issues and think of the worst, you know, as lawyers, we have to think of like what are the worst things that can happen and build in the protections far ahead of time.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I just wanted to um, finish the. Previous triad that I was. Okay, asking. I'm sorry. I, I just kind no, of thought that all, was the time to a, add that in. That's very relevant, and, okay. and and I'd love to talk about the, the idea of building privacy into technical systems. But um, so we're on the th- second or third triad right now, right? So we were talking about monitoring on the one hand, and then you know the database technology and uh, information storage and uh, and analysis as the second, and then the third one because I think this is what most people experience most directly, and that is the dissemination or the distribution of information. And at this point, really digital networks, uh, the Internet, you mentioned um, MySpace and Facebook, uh, the web as um, a huge conduit of information, great information, Wikipedia and so on, but also a conduit of personal information. So these three different um, categories of information technology all have a significant impact in disrupting Um, the flow of information, disrupting it from the old ways or uh, um, challenging some of the entrenched norms um, that have governed the flow of information in the past. And again, I don't want to sound as if all disruptions are bad. Some disruptions are are excellent. If if you're going in for surgery now, you may want to do um, some kind of background analysis on the surgeon who's about to perform surgery on you and with the Internet, we have a greater capacity to do that.
0: Absolutely. Right. So, so <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, in contextual integrity, besides describing these informational norms, there also there's uh, a large chunk of the book is devoted to precisely that question, which is um, we're, we're now confronted with uh, challenges, you know, new ways of doing things, new ways of information flowing in society, how do we roll up our sleeves and judge which ones are acceptable and which ones are problematic?
0: You know, there have been so many different uh, theories of privacy. So why don't you kind of clarify, and we've talked about a bunch of them on our show, so can you yes. clarify really the difference between the theory of privacy as contextual integrity yes. and some of the other approaches to understanding the, how we protect privacy?
1: Oh, great. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, how? Let, maybe the best way is to just um, refer to some of the theses or some of the claims that other theories might accept. And when I say theory, I don't necessarily mean some worked-out theory in a book or an academic article. I mean the kinds of beliefs that even a judge may have about what privacy is. And one of the most significant differences, say, between... Um, some of the accepted approaches to privacy and some of what I'm trying to argue in my book is that privacy should not be understood as control over information about oneself. If you ask people what bothers them about certain flows of information that they're being confronted with as a result of technology, I believe it's not because they know people no longer control information about themselves. They're just concerned that information is flowing in inappropriate ways. So when you make the claim that privacy equals control of information, you're making an untrue claim if you want to say that people actually care about privacy. So that's one way in which contextual integrity differs from a lot of what gets said about privacy, the nature of privacy and why we want it. And another is, is privacy is equated with secrecy, you know that people just want to withhold information. Absolutely not. People want to share information. People need to share information, but they just want it done appropriately. And what contextual integrity then does is try to map this notion. It tries to model this notion of what appropriate flow is. So that's one of, that's one of the major differences. Another one of the differences is the fact that um, some theories will draw on the notion that some, some information is sensitive information or private information and some information is public information. And the danger with that is we, we spend a lot of time trying to form a kind of bright line to define to to divide the two categories of information, and we might say, yes, we need to give privacy protection to sensitive information, but as far as all the rest of the information, anything goes. And what contextual integrity argues is that actually all information is is sensitive if by that you mean that under certain conditions you need to drain the flow of that information. And a lot, and most information is not sensitive in that there are appropriate places w- for that information to flow. So when you're with your doctor, like we all think about medical information as sensitive. When you're with your doctor, you want to have that information flow and you want it to flow freely. Or think about something like your name if you're just walking around and someone comes up to you and says, what's your name? You want to say none of your business. I mean, you may, unless you're like a super friendly person. <laughs> right. But, you know, in some, circu- when you're at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, your name is a highly sensitive piece of information, meaning it's not something that flows freely in that context. But in other contexts, your name flows very freely. So I, I, I really resist something that a lot of policy people will try to do in different environments. And I think the EU um, makes a mistake when it pushes in that direction. Spending hours and hours trying to define what private information is or what sensitive information is, but uh, I think we should really more focus on the appropriate constraints on the flow of different types of information.
0: We are speaking with a wonderful professor from New York University, Helen Nissenbaum. She's a professor of media, culture, and communication and computer science at New York University. And she's also a senior faculty fellow of the Information Law Institute. And I have right in front of me um, a book that I've just been reading. It's called Privacy in Context. And this is Helen Nissenbaum's new book. It's called Privacy in Context Technology Policy and The Integrity of Social Life, and you're listening to KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net, and I'm Mari Frank, your host, and I will get back to Helen right now. Helen, you know, um, for me, and and I've heard so many times, many of the people, the experts that I've uh, spoken with, talk about information, uh, privacy, as the right to controlling your information, and I think... And I understand what you're saying because, you know, there's been many times that we haven't been able to control our information. Only now it just seems I think the big issue for us now is before when um, before all these mega databases that could be shared so easily, Mm -hmm. it wasn't so much of a threat But Mm -hmm. now you find out that people are sharing information about you that you wouldn't want to have it. So you Mm -hmm. feel more out of control. You know, I understand what you're saying. Look at it within context. Mm -hmm. But I do think this lack of transparency Mm -hmm. has been a major issue that has made us as individuals feel like there is so much beyond our control.
1: Right. And actually, now, I I wonder step back because if someone's listening to me who says, "Oh, you don't think pri- privacy is control of information" and suggests that I might be presenting maybe a weaker understanding of privacy. Actually, I think there are ways in which if you did say that privacy began and ended with control of information, people would be actually would confront far greater threats than um what I think we would confront if some model of what I'm suggesting could be adopted. So the model I'm suggesting says a society needs to make explicit now some of what can and cannot be done with information. The individual cannot be the gatekeeper of the flow of personal information, and one of the reasons is precisely what you're saying, which is there's so much the individual does not know. So that when when you confront an individual and say, All right, here you go, you can have your entire medical file under your control. And now this person goes for a job interview and is and the and you know and needs the job desperately and the interviewer says, Could I take a look at your medical file? Now the person has to make a decision. But if we have rules in society that says this information cannot flow in that way, you offer much more protection to the individual. You you, you need to, so so this is, and by the way, control is not, um, it's not that control has nothing to do with information. So when you're in a social setting, I think the norm generally is that people share information voluntarily. No one's gonna force information. Out from you, if, if it's a friendship and you're having a chat over a cup of coffee, you you want to volunteer the information, but for reasons that I've I've just told you, I think control can even be highly problematic, for, as as the gatekeeping protection.
0: And you know, I think it all gets down to what you've been talking about. Like you want to share with a friend, you want to share with your doctor. Mm-hmm. Isn't it really all about you want to share with those with whom you trust? And well, and even even mm -hmm. those people remember the big brouhaha's with with uh, Facebook people who would put up stuff on Facebook, Mm -hmm. thought that they were only sharing with friends. Mm -hmm. And some of the brouhaha's came out when they found out that they were sharing with more than friends, you know, that they want to be totally open with their friends, but they don't want to be totally open with people that they don't know that they don't trust that people they don't think are their friends. Right. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of young people get on Facebook and they start to trust everybody. But, yeah. but the, I think the word trust is very important to the word privacy. You know, as a mediator, an attorney mediator myself, mm-hmm. I mean, people open up to me in mediation mm-hmm. not because it's the process or the social context necessarily. It's because they learn to trust me.
1: Well, they learn to trust you, and I would go a little bit further than that and say you're, you're providing a certain service. There's a certain purpose that mediation serves, and the purpose of mediation can only be promoted if the people who are engaged with it are ready to share the crucial information for a mediation to be successful. And so when we talk about what the norms should be, and this is really the, the, the big part of the second part of the theory that's discussed in the book, we have to ask about the purposes, the ends, the purposes, the values of the context in which we find ourselves, and ask what kinds of flows are most important to the successful achievement of these goals. And so your discussion of mediation is exactly on target. And we can look at, you know, big institutions like democratic elections and try and ask why is it that we have secret vote? Well, we have it because that's the best way to achieve democratic election. You know, you can imagine if votes were public, what, would, what, what democracy would be, you know, out the window.
0: And that goes and to so, the issue of trust. We trust that if we go to the voting polls that no one's going to know what our vote is so that the, um, the party in power won't come back and stab us in the back or something, like they would well, in another country, perhaps. Well, we
1: certainly have to, the, the trust part of it, um, I think there are circumstances in which we're going to be forced to provide information whether or not we want to. Or, you know, we can't determine the, the full conditions of the flow of information in society. Sometimes you need, a person shouldn't be, in charge of where the certain information um, gets out there. so you know if you want to um,
0: when you're talking it, about law enforcement or security exactly, yeah yeah exactly, I mean those make sense. Exactly, exactly. but you have to trust the system that those who are using it, that the law enforcement who's using it mm-hmm. are using it for the good of society rather than such things as using it to get back at an ex spouse. Do you know what I mean? Or you have to trust the IRS, you know, as as one who deals with victims of privacy invasions. I mean, real life people, aside from identity theft, you know, I hear from people who find out that, you know, somebody went into the IRS, you know, an ex-spouse goes into, um, has a friend in the IRS, and then they get the tax return and give it away. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to give that sensitive information to the IRS, you have to trust Mm-hmm. that they're going to use it for the purpose that they say that they're going to use it for, and they're not going to use it for another purpose, and it's not going to be a purpose that that um, is not transparent to you. You know when you give your information to the tax people at the IRS or the Franchise Tax Board or the New York Tax Board that that's supposed to be used to assess your taxes. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly. supposed to be used so that your ex-spouse can see what you're doing or right. somebody who doesn't like you. So... Right. Again, I, I do think that trust has a lot to do with it, and I know even in a mediation, and I'm not trying to argue mm-hmm. with you, I'm just telling you, at least from my perspective, I can see how people who trust their bank and then finds out that their bank did something that they shouldn't, mm-hmm. or their insurance company, or their or their doctor's office, mm-hmm. it's a huge breach of trust mm-hmm. that the privacy, the stuff that they thought was going to be used for one purpose is used mm-hmm. for another purpose. And Or, or uh, you know, a dirty insider or something like that. So I think in that context, yeah, you know, we have to share and we, we share it. And I just think, you know, there's so many challenges with all this. Not that, that your, your approach is not a great approach. I just, you know, it's just so overwhelming, I think, for people to deal with that they want to have some, at least if they don't have a, a, in control, at least they have transparency of where it's going
1: well you, you there there are many many requirements and you've identi- identified some uh, some really important ones so you if you, you know in some instances control over the information is the correct and in my you know in my picture of things control over information by the subject is one of these things that I call the transmission principle one of the many many transmission principles that exist then if for instance, in the cases that you were describing, um, mediation or the IRS, society has to commit to the, the appropriate flows of information in those contexts, in your, say in your relationship with government with whom you share a lot of information, and none of that is voluntary. Sh- well, most of it is not voluntary sharing. Nobody is asked whether they would like to fill out Right. After turn, right? right And you have to fill in the boxes that they say that you must fill in. So um, the one thing you do want to be assured of is, well, you want to know why they're asking you this information. I think, I think we, we begin to, you know, nobody really thinks in detail, but we hope that someone has thought in detail why they're asking you these particular questions, why the IRS is asking you these particular questions. And if there was suddenly a question in there that said, How many men did you sleep with last year? I mean, right. if it's something outrageous. You might say, What?
0: What's you that know? got to do with my taxes? Right, exactly. So Unless we, they paid me, right?
1: <laughs> right. So, so we. <laughs> right. It's not so funny these days. But I would say that um, you have to know that this IRS is asking you questions that are appropriate. So this is the type of information that the IRS should be asking citizens. And then absolutely we want to know that they're not just dishing this information out to everybody, but it's highly constrained in who gets access to this type of information that you have um, been compelled to provide to the government. And then, as you say, it should be only used in ways that are understood. The IRS has a mandate to do one thing, and it shouldn't be going and doing something else with that information. Like someone on the side has a little business, uh, you know, a property business, so they've read your form and they say, oh, you know, this person might be interested in property in California. Let me contact them. No, that's an inappropriate use of the information and and it, it shouldn't be done. And then for all of this, trust is absolutely essential from the beginning all the way to the end.
0: We're listening, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We're speaking with a fabulously wonderful professor from the university, um, from New York University, and she has written this book, which is fascinating. And I did just get it the other day, but I've been reading it, so I, I haven't read everything, but I, I did read quite a few of the chapters and in, in the introduction and the conclusion because I didn't get it till almost the end, but it's great book. It's called Privacy in Context. Technology, Policy, and the Integrity of Social Life by Helen Nissenbaum. And I got a kick out of it because those of you who have listened to my show and, and get those podcasts um, might be interested to know that Dan Solov, who is the author of Understanding Privacy, and he's also the author of The Digital Person and um, you know Your Reputation on the Internet, he, uh, he's been on our show several times. We love him. And he said about this book, that it is a refreshing contemporary look at information privacy in the 21st century. Nissenbaum persuasively argues that privacy must be understood in its social context, and she provides an insightful and an illuminating account of how to do so. For anyone considering the burgeoning problems of information privacy, privacy in context is essential reading. So that's great. Dan is a wonderful guy. We love him.
1: Well, uh, uh, the, the the feelings are mutual for Dan. I mean, he's definitely one of the foremost uh, privacy law scholars in, in in the world. I would say.
0: Yeah, he's terrific. So, so let's go to this. You know, often people say that privacy, and some people, not all people, but some people mm-hmm. say that privacy is a barrier to certain actions. You know, mm-hmm. that that privacy stands in opposition to other goals like efficiency mm-hmm. or security. And right now, with all of the craziness that we've heard about with, with regard to terrorism and security and privacy. there There is a, such a, a big push toward, you know, body scanning, you know, and, and I have to tell you from my own perspective, I don't understand why in the world we're not doing uh, in questioning, profiling by questions and psych, psychological profiling rather than, you know, somewhat like they do in Israel. I think that's less of a uh, of a privacy invasion than looking at my body. You know, I mean, I just don't get it. I don't understand why we can't learn from the Israelis. And people will say, well, that's a privacy invasion. Well, you know what? If they ask me some questions about why I'm traveling, where I'm traveling, and I know what it's for, mm-hmm. I think that is less of a privacy invasion than looking at my body.
1: Yeah, and and actually what you just said was confirmed by a study that um, Elie Zurich, actually, forgive me, but I don't quite know how to pronounce his name, did in many countries, and that was they looked at different types of scenarios. And the airport scenario was one scenario. And when they asked people, you know, when you go through these searches and so forth um, or questioning, do you feel that your privacy has been violated? And oddly enough, people mainly said no. And I – so – so just to get back to the question you were asking earlier, <laughs> actually if you think of if you think of privacy as secrecy in that, you know, privacy means withholding information, just withholding information, then you can see why people say that privacy is a barrier to certain other social goods like for instance security or business efficiency or whatever. But if you think about privacy in the sense that I've been trying to um, promote, which is privacy as appropriate flow of information.
0: And I think that word appropriate is so important, yet so um, difficult to define.
1: Exactly. And that's really what the book is trying to do. It's trying to unpack that concept. But if you think of it in that way, then... Then we can see that actually appropriate flow of information is highly compatible with many of these these um, other values in society. So if you think about, again, if you think about democracy in a flourishing democracy, constraint on the certain um, constraints on the flow of information encourages the value, this value which is democracy, you know, true democracy. And similarly, you could argue that in the case of security and business efficiency and so on, if, if we can be guaranteed that the flow of information is appropriate, then people would be highly cooperative and they would not complain. I mean, this is my argument. People wouldn't complain about information sharing under the appropriate constraints. And so I don't think that typical way of thinking of privacy as a barrier, as an obstacle, is correct.
0: Right. I don't either. I agree. So when we're when we're talking about what's appropriate and we're talking about new technology, which mm-hmm. can be or may not be privacy invasive, depending yes. on how it's used, right? Exactly. I mean, technology... Or, or
1: designed, right. as, as you were talking about earlier in the show.
0: Right. That's exactly what I was going to get back to. I was going to say technology in itself isn't good or bad. I mean, isn't the evil thing, you know, mm-hmm. it could be, u- it's how it's used. So mm-hmm. if, if we're looking at how do we have appropriate use of privacy, how yes. the heck do we get these technologies to integrate that privacy?
1: Yes, yes. Well, I mean, first of all, you, you'll be pleased to know, and probably your other guests have, have also discussed this with you, that many people in the field, for instance, of computer science are, and and that may be particularly in academia. So that the ones I talk to a lot, they're very interested in this question. And um, even if they're not inherently interested, they realise that there's a lot of there's a lot of other interest in in technology that is um, protective of privacy. So, I mean, the trouble is that often these systems get built and um, for instance, even take something like uh, cookies, web cookies, where it was uh, it was a technology that was created um, that that was a necessary part of the way the the World Wide Web functioned, and then um, people found clever ways around this, and it became an instrument for, um, tracking. for tracking
0: people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And so sometimes you have no choice but to. Take some existing systems and and um, work privacy into them because uh, unfortunately and accidentally we find them t- to be capable of uh, disrupting the flows of information in in ways that violate our privacy. So um, so t- so for instance this piece of software that um, I had mentioned to you previously called TrackMeNot was an effort. Uh, by myself and a, a very small team of programmers to create a piece of software that enters into the web search space and says, uh, and basically um, expresses a protest, really, to the fact that in this particular environment, as a matter of fact, systems are built such that all your web searches are logged and recorded, and you have um, no say, or, or not even, you know you mentioned transparency. We don't even really know where that information is, what gets done with it, or anything like that. So sometimes one has to um, build a kind of opposing piece of technology that does it for you. But really, one would want to build it into the system uh, from the get-go. And for instance, at the moment in in healthcare, there's a major, major transition afoot with our records going electronic, and I think everybody's aware that privacy has to be built in uh, from scratch.
0: So, what kind of responses um, has the TrackMeNot software received? Uh huh. Well, we have. I'm I'm just guessing because, as you can imagine, we don't carefully
1: track the users who who download TrackMeNot. Right. But it's offered as a free extension, um, a free Firefox extension which anybody can download from the Mozilla website. And as far as we know, or or from our own website. So we can can track numbers to some extent. And we're somewhere at the three quarters or even a million downloads. Hmm. So now that doesn't mean necessarily that a million people around the world are actually using the technology. But we know that there are a lot of people who've been very happy and they've used it. We constantly get emails. Uh some of them are very encouraging and friendly. Some of them are not at all friendly. They tell us that we're assisting bad people and we're enabling uh people terrorists to or something. Yeah. Terrorism, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, so so we get a lot of email, but um generally very friendly and very appreciative. Tell
0: and the tell us No, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, tell yes. us the the two websites uh, exactly where, where the people can download this.
1: Well, if actually if you look, if you just go to my website, um, because I, I don't have the URL written, but if you go to my website, um, there's a link to track me. Not
0: okay. So to, your yeah. website is that the edu one? Could you just give that? Um, that is
1: uh, actually because I have such an odd name. If you just put my name, Helen Nissenbaum, into Google. You'll get to my NYU website, and that should be pretty easy. And we are linking,
0: and on. we are linking your website uh, to our website at kuci dot org slash privacy piracy. Okay. But if you want to, you can say Helen H e l e n and go into Google or whatever search engine you use, and then Nissenbaum is spelled N i s s e n b a u m. Or you can go to Firefox, right? And Mozilla Firefox? If you go to um, Mozilla Extensions and Add-ons. Mm-hmm. Then you can also get you, it for free there? Yeah, you
1: can just search on TrackMeNot. And uh, the reason we post it there is because um, they will do a study of any um, extension, any little piece of software that gets submitted to their website. They, they will study it to make sure that it's, it doesn't have, a uh, you know, obvious bugs, and it doesn't have a virus or anything like that. So we, we wanted their endorsement.
0: That's great. Mm, you're listening yeah. to uh, Professor Helen Nissenbaum, who is the author of Privacy in Context, Technology, Policy, and the Integrity of Social Life. And I'm Mari Frank, your host of Privacy Piracy, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net, and we also podcast Let's talk a, a, let's switch gears a little bit and tell me what ad, what do you mean by agnostic explain what that is uh, all right so
1: some some of you some of your listeners or you may have been following um the controversial discussion of um behavior based advertising right oh it's a huge
0: issue now yes
1: and the, the, the there's this logic that People simply accept without questioning, and that is that. Well, advertising is accepted to be one of the ways in which free content um, is 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 enabled on the web. Because how how else can we have free content? Uh, I mean, there are many different ways. Let me just say, but one of the most important ways is through advertising. So the the thought is that um, behavior based advertising is now considered to be the most effective form of advertising because if I can just keep track of where you go, all the websites you visit, a lot of what, you know, some of the searches you make, then I can profile you and I can guess what you're interested in and I can provide you ads that you're more likely to click onto. And so that's really considered um, where the state of the art is in online advertising, although I should say that at this point, um, context-based advertising and other forms of advertising are probably still in the majority, but this is the wave of the future. So the logic goes that in order to do behavioral advertising, you need to track every place, ideally, if possible, mm-hmm. that a person goes to when they're online. Right. And what agnostic does is it, it, it really um, challenges that claim Adnostic is a system that was built with a few people, Dan Bonet, Stanford, um, and a few other people who who I'd be happy um uh to name. <laughs> but um it's a piece of software, it it currently also functions as a Mozilla add on and what this the what the 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 way it would work is that it would um track your behaviour within your own browser. What it says then is that we can do the tracking privately or secretly within your browser and not let any third party know what you've done. But then we, the internal tracker in adnostic, can help make the selection of the ads to be presented to the user. And so we're breaking that connection between um, targeted advertising and tracking your behavior. So, so basically, saying, yes, the
0: software itself l- looks for ads that might be good for you, but doesn't, But you're not profiled by every other company around. Is exactly. It, did I get it. it? Yeah.
1: Exactly the hang of it. Now, okay. Now, this is different from TrackMeNot. In that TrackMeNot, we were able to build from beginning to end, and we didn't need anybody's cooperation. Um, we could do it ourselves. And fortunately, there is this mechanism of Mozilla and these um, extensions. With adnostic, if, this, if adnostic is going to work, and we've, we've, we've talked to uh, the Federal Trade Commission, we're trying to talk to the big advertising companies, we need some ad networks, advertising networks, to cooperate with us. And that would be a big breakthrough for us. And, of course, this is something, you know, we have to explain why it's not only good for individuals, but it's also good for the ad networks.
0: Well, if there's a bunch of ad networks and an and agnostic can go out there and say, gee, you know, we've got this profile. We think that this person would like a trip to Hawaii.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, so then they find it. And that is more yeah. privacy protective because we're yeah. you're, I'm not being profiled by everybody yeah. to decide yeah. that, you know, that somebody who could get it into their hands and decide that I go to Hawaii, so I must have money, so I must be, I should be broken into or or something else should happen to me, so yeah, yeah,, yeah. yeah. so are there any negative ramifications to using agnostics well, um since it's not really
1: um in a in a state to be used out there, I can only say that um the advert- the ad networks even though the the the, the mantra if you will had has been that you have to track in order to target, and we're saying no, here's how you can target without tracking. The ad networks um still want to track. You know, there's no doubt. Um they would like to have our information. It's much more convenient for them to have our information than for them to come knocking on our door and, and saying, you know, we'll deal with you on your terms. And
0: so Right. They they want to have the control. <laughs> that gets back to control, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they would like to have this big uh databases. Yeah. So yeah. so
1: that's I can understand that for them um, But they would also like to
0: have it probably to sell it and share it as well.
1: So there are all sorts of things that are not being said and we're trying to see if we can provoke a more open discussion about it. I should say though that for instance one advantage of Adnostic is that if I was a website that was very mindful of my visitors privacy I may not subscribe to any advertising at all but if there was a way for me to provide advertising when I knew that my visitors were not being tracked, I would post those ads on my website. So there is a way in which Adnostic could actually provide new business for ad networks. And
0: I think if you sign up for Adnostic, then you'd be trusting of that, and you'd be more trusting of the ads that come to you through Adnostic than you would be through just any other, you know, pop-up. No. Yeah, no,
1: I, I, I do think there, there, there are arguments there yeah. are incentives. They're reasons for going that are not only for the individual but for the industry at large.
0: You know, we only have about another minute, so I'm. I there are so many more questions I could ask you. We'll have to have you back again. But just can can you just tell us? You know, we've been you know as attorneys and all, and so much about privacy. Can you just sum up um, real quickly? And I know you probably can't do it quickly, but give us a little bit of an appetizer to talk about. How we can, uh, what kind of reasonable expectation of privacy can we really have in the information age?
1: Mm-hmm. If uh, again, I, I'm back to the point that I, I've made repeatedly, which is that if we think about privacy as appropriate flow, and many people in different areas of society can can work on their particular areas of expertise. People in healthcare, people in libraries. I mean, librarians are just so amazing in this regard talk about what are the norms that should govern the flow of information in those particular contexts down to the details, we would, we would benefit enormously.
0: All right. Well, we thank you so very, very much for coming on. And thank we, you. And we uh, will be talking to you again. and can't wait to hear about your future research and future books. So you'll keep in touch with us, won't you, Helen? I will. Thank you, Marie. All right. And we'll tell people to go and uh, just... Because the easiest way to do it is to go to NYU and look up Helen Nissenbaum. But if they want to click on our website, at uh, the URL for your website. And they can also find Privacy in Context, your brand new book. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org in the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Also, uh, go to our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy and see our upcoming guests. You can see their pictures, their bios, their URLs. Also, you can click on previous interviews, download podcasts, and please write us emails. We'd love to hear from you. So join us next Monday. Bye-bye. Stay private.
1: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.